At some point, we realized our goal was to move to Omaha, Nebraska, so that we could then earn enough money to then come back to Moses Lake, Washington, where we lived. And you can see that this is an well, asinine. It plan, sounds right? like that cliche metaphor story about the guy fishing on the island and the guy. Yes, tells him yes, to, that was yes. us. We were living that like we're. <laughs> In this episode, you'll get to know Scott Anthony Barlow, the career psychology nerd, and you'll hear the story of how he learned to harness his ADHD to create a unique pathway to becoming a world-recognized expert in career development. I'm Dave Crenshaw, and this is my success project. Welcome back, friend, to the Dave Crenshaw Success Project. This is the show where I'm teaching my kids how to be successful through the life stories of others, but you get to come along for the ride no matter what your age is. And in case it's your first time here, I'm a best-selling author. I speak around the world. I speak to Fortune 500 companies, and I also have online courses that have helped millions of people become more successful. With this show, I wanted to create something lasting that would help my family succeed. And in this show, I'm extremely selective about who I interview. I want to interview successful people, but not just those who have financial or career success, but who have multifaceted success in multiple aspects of their lives. And then in the interview, I'm looking for universal principles of success that you can apply right now, today, in your life and career. That's what the Success Project is all about. As you listen to today's episode, please look for something you can do, an action you can take, because it's not just about the knowledge that you gain, but what you do about that knowledge. That's what will make you successful. And today's guest has a lot of wonderful principles to share with you. Scott Anthony Barlow is the author and CEO of Happen to Your Career and the host of the Happen to Your Career podcast which has been listened to over 4 million times across 159 countries, which makes it the largest career change podcast in the world. With over a decade of experience in human resources and management, Scott guides others in finding fulfilling careers of their own. His work has been featured globally on MSNBC, Glassdoor, The Muse, and many other major publications. Today, Scott enjoys a more meaningful life with his wife and three kids in Washington State. Thanks for being on the show, Scott. And I would say that the pleasure is all mine. I appreciate. I know I told you earlier offline, but I really appreciate it. Appreciate you asking me on, and I'm excited for this. Yeah, well, and I love your background in career psychology. I, I think a lot of people who are tuning into the show, they're thinking about how do I be more successful in my career? What changes do I need to make in my career? So I'm looking forward to getting your insight as we explore your personal story of success. Very cool. So I always like to start by asking people the same question, because in a very loose chronological order, we're going to explore your career path. So when you were a teenager, what did you want to be when you grew up? <laughs> all the things. I wanted to be all the okay. things. No, the real answer is that it changed quite a bit. I wanted to go into space at one point. And then there was a period nice. of time where I wanted to be a video game designer. I drew very, 
I guess, long video game. This was back when video games only scrolled two ways, like 2D along the screen. Sure. So, yeah. The Legend of Zelda 2. Oh, yeah. Right? That was, oh, yeah, yeah. Absolutely. So there was that point all the way to Architect to I wanted to be in a band as I really got interested in music. There nice. was quite a few different things. And, you know, I, I think that I'm actually now curious what uh, what you would answer to this this question. But, you know, everybody asks you when you're that age, and I have kids this age now, too, where they're like, what do you want to be when you grow up? What do you, what do you right. want to do when you grow up, like for the rest of your life? But what, what was your answer at that point in time when you had all that pressure? Well, and the reason why I start with that is because I find it fascinating that sometimes yeah. people end up exactly where they thought they were going to. I would say probably half the people that I've interviewed Early on, they knew what they wanted and they became that. Then there's the other half where it's not even close at all. And sure. what you're describing is actually very similar to me in that I was kind of interested in everything. Although right about the point that I was leaving high school and starting to contemplate a career, I very much wanted to be Steven Spielberg. I wanted to be a movie director. Awesome. What prompted and, and that? I got, I'm so curious what, now. Just the movies, just the, the the fascination with it. I've always been drawn a little bit to audiovisual stuff and so yeah, the idea of doing that, also a little bit of telling people what to do. <laughs> I like the idea of that. So, and then I got into uh, my first class orientation yeah. for the film program sure. at the university. And the first thing I said is, you're not going to make any money doing this. <laughs> don't, don't expect to make money. Don't expect to get jobs. Just plan on this not working out. I'm like, why would I study this if you guys are telling me that from the beginning I've already lost? So that's kind of where it ended up for me. You know what's fascinating about that though? I had a lot of people say the same thing, but I would receive very contradictory advice over and over again. People would say, you should go into radio. You have a radio voice or yeah. things like that. And then simultaneously in the next sentence, they'd be like, you're never going to make any money doing that. I'm so sorry for you. Like I, they'd <laughs> condemned me to the, <laughs> that's yeah, all I was going to I don't know why people feel they, the need to qualify that, but clearly you have made money. Clearly you have been successful with it but maybe that's why we get along because my dad was a radio talk show host oh really i don't um, think i didn't realize that yeah yeah so i grew up around the studio and it sounds like that was part of your inclination too of just media communication that sort of stuff is that pretty accurate absolutely i took when i realized i was not going to be in a band for my the rest of my life because <laughs> it turns out bands travel all the time and i realized when i was 15 i didn't want to do that what Oh, so it was 15. What kind of music were you doing? I was really into Pearl Jam, Nirvana, but also blues. Uh, and like there was a point in time where I got asked to play with a blues band. And it uh, turns out I wasn't old enough to go into the bars and play. So <laughs> yeah, there's that. There was, there was that. But yeah, quite, quite a bit. But that, that was my main, like Pearl Jam was you know, literally the password when I only had, you know, one word passwords for a long, long, long time. <laughs> that sounds like a, a child of, of the 90s if you're Certainly. talking about Nirvana and all. Yeah, so cuz I also had a band for a few years. Oh really? Yeah, this was in the in the early 2000s, but yeah, my wife supported me while I had a band. So That is fantastic. I'm learning so much about you, Dave. So what did you study when you went to college? What was your focus then? Similar to my childhood, you'll notice a few patterns here. Okay. I made a lot of changes. I think I changed majors nine times, if I recall correctly. 
Wow. Close okay. to nine times, if not more, where I didn't make the actual changes. And, you know, I started out with actually, what did I even start out in? Oh, I started out as a computer science major early on. Oh, okay. Which sounds very different from everything we've talked about. Yeah, that was my first thing. I'm like, where that seems very different. So there was a period of time where I took apart computers and then learned to code back when coding was more complicated than it is now. And you're, you know, working with DOS and you're um, writing commands in very different ways. And when I got to college, I had just a few experiences with that and realized, well, maybe that's something I want to do. I really enjoyed making things on computers and I really enjoyed, you know, we were, we had early access to the internet. My dad, for some reason, decided he was going to, he was going to uh, get us the internet and we had to hook up to the local high school somehow. I'm still not even sure how he did it. <laughs> Anyhow, yeah. all that to say that I started out in, you know, writing code and computer science and quickly realized that I didn't want to sit in a closet uh, writing code. I enjoyed being around people. So with that many major changes, the question that comes to my mind is, have you ever been diagnosed with ADHD? Yes. And uh, if I'm (laughs) not mistaken, you have as well. Is that correct? Yep. Freaking off the charts ADHD is what the psychologist said to me. Freaking off the charts. That is, I love that official diagnosis. I would put that on your resume and every place else. At what point did your knowledge of that diagnosis come? Did that come later? Much later in life. Much later in life. In my late 20s. Okay. Yeah. All right. I just knew that I couldn't stick with things for some reason. And that was how it showed up. I was very excited about things. I would learn rapidly and I would blow through all the learning, do a huge amount of creation and focus on whatever I was excited about and then get very bored very quickly. And my performance would tank in whatever area I was interested in at the time. And then I would move on and then I would, you know, feel bad about myself and shame myself and all the things and then wonder what was going on. And then I'd move on to the next thing and forget about it and be excited. Boy, that, yeah, again, that sounds so familiar. Yeah. It it wasn't until, um, I'm exactly 30 years older than my oldest son. So right about 29, 20, uh, 30. That's where I went and said, I'm jumping from career to career. I don't want to be like this because I want to be a father that can consistently provide for my family. What's going on? And then that's when I got the diagnosis. So for me, that was a turning point in figuring out, oh, I have a name and a face to this. I can manage it by you learning skills. Was it like that for you? Was getting that diagnosis helpful or was it more just, well, that's great knowledge, but it's not changing my behavior uh, at all? No matter what your career is, your foundation of success begins with one thing, effective time management. And thanks to the generosity of Microsoft, you can get my entire course, Time Management Fundamentals, for free on LinkedIn Learning. Go to davegift.com to get your free access now. This is the course that millions around the world have used to become more productive and reduce stress. Everyone from Fortune 500 executives to freelancers to students. Now, it's the same coaching I've provided in person for tens of thousands of dollars per day, but you can get it for free 
on LinkedIn Learning. You don't need to provide anything to access it. No credit card, no email. Just go to davegift.com and start learning. Thank you so much, Microsoft and LinkedIn Learning, for your partnership. davegift.com. That's a great question. And I don't, even though on on our show, the Happen to Your Career podcast, we've talked about this topic a lot. And I've just with friends talked about this topic a lot. I don't think I've been exactly asked that question before. Let me think about it for a second. I think by that point in time, I was accepting that I was wired differently, even though I didn't understand where it was coming from. And I was starting to really leverage that and use that to my advantage. So what I'm very thankful for is I had a variety of people in my life that were willing to take me on and deal with the negative sides of how ADHD showed up. And, and that really allowed me to cultivate the very, very positive sides of it, which gave me a huge competitive advantage to all people who don't, you know, have ADHD. Yeah. So it's interesting. In all the interviews I've done, this topic has not come up really? yet. Interesting. No, yeah. It has. I mean, maybe someone mentioned it offhand, but not like this. And so I, I do want to dig in a little bit to it because what people don't realize is, you know, with, it depends on the statistics you look at, but you know, let's go on the high end. We're talking about 10%. So 10% of the people in the world has, have the clinical yeah. Um, condition of uh, attention deficit hyperactivity disorder that is almost always genetic uh, in the way that it's passed. So usually you see a parent. Did, did you have a parent that was? Dealing yeah. With so it? we were just celebrating my dad's birthday this past week. We all mm-hmm. went and stayed in a big house and everything. And my dad cannot sit down, just cannot. He'll you know hold conversation for a little bit. Just then he's on to the next thing. So yes, yeah. he was the, he was the okay. Parent. So, and and what that means is you either work with somebody or you know somebody or you've got somebody in your family that's dealing with this. So I want to ask a question uh, that's a little more personal with it. Yeah. How functional were you prior to getting the diagnosis? Because I think functionality is a very important aspect of knowing what you're dealing with. Hmm. I think it depends on how you define functional. However, For me, in some ways, I had learned to operate well around other people and in certain environments. And part of that was because I I kept finding myself over and over. And this is actually thanks to my dad, too. My dad very much has this, we're just going to figure it out type of attitude. It doesn't matter what it is. Like, we're Mm. going to launch a rocket in the backyard. No, a big rocket. And we'll just figure (laughs) out how to do it. No, none of us are rocket scientists, but we'll figure it out. Yeah. You know, and that's very much what I grew up with. So I, I think that type of mentality really helped to carry me through to figure out how to mm. operate in so many different environments and combined with the fact that I was around really challenging situations and I kept taking on very challenging situations over and over again, that propelled my skills and development and forced me, whether I liked it or not, to find ways to deal with it positively. Also many ways to deal with it negatively, but then it became this sort of Petri dish and experimentation where I could pick and choose and see, you know, that this method allowed me to build relationship with my family and with my coworkers. And this other method allowed me to, you know, get a lot of stuff done, but I, you know, would tank all the relationships and and people around me. 
Yeah. Well, I love how you took that and were looking for ways to use it to your advantage. And it's interesting. I So my son also, by the way, is off the charts ADHD yeah. and deals with it. How old's your son now? He, he just turned 18. Okay. But because I have been through it, my knowledge of that has helped him deal with it. So you, you have how many children? I have three kids. My oldest is 16 or she's going to be 16 oh. here very shortly. So we've got new driver in okay. the family, but so, so yeah. not too far, not too yeah, far yeah, behind. That's, that's a great thing. Isn't it? Yes. To get the taxi driver, the Uber. Oh my driver goodness. We're so family. close. We're so almost there. Yes. Uber <laughs> driver. Yeah. Built in. Uber. Yeah, exactly. What I like about your story is you're highlighting something that I tell people, which is every strength has an associated weakness and every weakness has an associated strength. And I, I feel like there are a couple of camps that I see way too often when it comes to ADHD. One is the person who says, this is not a superpower, right? This isn't a good thing. And if you start treating it like it has a good thing, people don't take it seriously and they don't believe that it needs help, right? And I feel like that does a discredit to the value that a weakness can be turned into a strength like ADHD. And then there's the other camp that's like, this is a superpower and it's wonderful and I can do anything with it because I have ADHD, which also is not accurate. There is a cost associated with it and there are skills that we must learn to manage it. Yeah. I don't think it really matters what you call it. However, we have a tendency in our organization to think about this as there are a really positive side, what you're calling strengths, And then also of those strengths, there is a shadow side or what we've referred to over the years of as an, as an anti-strength essentially. And I think what is really fascinating about that is that's just as true for ADHD as it is for any other way that someone is wired, whether it is more normalized or not. And what, what I found, and this is the part that really just fascinates me is that, is it just a, you know, a, one of the many, many, many ways in which people are wired. And I think that's one of the reasons I love looking at it through the strengths lens is because then a lot of that stuff for, starts to fall away and you realize the same r- rules are true, no matter how you operate, no matter, you know, what way your brain is structured. And I find that to be a healthier place to to operate from. So, you know, like you and I are both going through and we're, we're raising kids that have, you know, ADHD and it's, I will say that in many ways, although it's much better now, the world has not really been optimized or friendly in some cases, especially education for ADHD. Yeah. Well, that last part, I think we're gradually shifting. We're starting to see people be a little more accepting of it in brief. I like this metaphor. It's an extreme metaphor, but it illustrates it perfectly, which is, you know, Superman. Superman Mm -hmm. can do lots of really strong things and he's amazing, but he also has kryptonite. Mm -hmm. And if he gets in in contact with kryptonite, everything falls apart and he's not going to do what he needs to do. And, you know, ADHD does allow some, some things like you mentioned how you start your day and you've got all these ideas flowing out of your head the moment you pop out of bed. Right. Mm -hmm. So that's a gift. But also if you like allow yourself to get sucked into something that's low value, that's distracting, it's really easy for someone who has ADHD to not be able to perform at work, not be able to focus. I was not entirely functional. (laughs) 
I mean, you know, some people, I mean, now I can play a video game, I can play for an hour or something, and then I can leave it alone. But prior to getting treatment, prior to getting help, I would play video game for two weeks Mm -hmm. and not get anything done. Recognizing the problem areas and staying away from those problem areas is also part of the deal. Oh, I have a funny story for you for that. Okay. So <laughs> first of all, I definitely resonate with your, you know, playing a video game for weeks. I missed so many classes during my second year of mm-hmm. school mm-hmm. because of Diablo and my friends and I would Chris just stay tonight. up all night oh, long. Yeah, yep, that'll do it. All night long. Anyhow, different note, more current day. This is painful for people to hear, I found, which is f- a little bit funny to me. But one of the ways I've dealt with the whole... I will get sucked into something is a good example is binge watching series, especially long series that maybe have many seasons. So I generally try and stay away from those, which that is abnormal. I have this big long list in the first place that I'd love to see, but you know, I'd also love to work for the next you know few weeks and those things are not entirely compatible. So the way that I felt figured out how to deal with this is I will go through, I'll start the first episode, I'll watch one or two episodes, and then I will skip to the very last episode and watch the last 15 minutes, 20 minutes. And, <laughs> <laughs> and I, so now it's spoiled. It's spoiled. Yes, it's spoiled. But also my family gets to eat and, you know, my team gets to That's get paid brilliant. and everything. Uh, see, I love that. I love that example because it. Uh, another, I have a course on LinkedIn learning called finding success your own way with unique habits. Yeah. And the idea is doing things that are weird that other people look at and they go, why would you do that? But they're adapted to the way that you, who you are mm-hmm. and making those things a part of your career will help you succeed. So I, I love that you spoil it for yourself and then that keeps you. It's not for walking. everybody. I do not recommend that for every person yeah, in no, the world. But and it works for people, you. Yeah. Most people cringe right, yeah. when I tell the story. They're like, ah, oh, how could you? Why would you even tell yeah. me about that? I get it, man. I get it. As someone who's dealt with that. Absolutely. Okay. So let's return to your story. What did you graduate in when you graduated from college? When I finally graduated, I was a super senior partially because I made all the changes along the way. And eventually I started a business working, doing painting and light contracting and, you know, a number of other things too. And that was way more fun than studying to me, but it caused me to take an extra year. I was taking a really low amount of credits and then I was working 60 hours a week with my, essentially my, actually, I guess it was my third business at that point, but the first successful one when I finally graduated, I realized that I loved the business elements. And so I graduated with a human resources degree, a general management degree. And I'm pretty sure I dropped my other major of marketing at the same time. I think there I had like one or two more classes, but I wanted to get out of there. So okay. that was it. After all the nine changes, that's where I ended up. And... After that, there was a period of time that you basically entered the corporate world. How did you make a transition from that of basically being a business owner, doing odd jobs, subcontracting work to actually working for a a structured corporation? Very poorly. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) No, but here's what I mean. It's, It's not necessarily, I've heard a lot of people say, hey, I'm unemployable and I could never, ever work for another organization. And it wasn't about that for me as much, not at that time. Instead, it was more that 
I had this situation that I actually loved. I had, you know, at the height of it, I had about 20 people working for me in that business. And oh, nice. it was, you know, it was really profitable. I made, I don't know, 40 or 40 ish thousand dollars a year, which might as well have been a million dollars when I was a college student. And, and it, it was enjoyable. I was learning all the time. And although I didn't love, you know, contracting and exterior painting, it wasn't the world's most fun thing. It was definitely useful skills and I was contributing. So I went from that set of feelings and something that I was really enjoying to doing what I felt I was supposed to do. I didn't have any positive role models for business owners around me. So instead, I assumed that what you did to be successful was you went and got a job and then you move up the ladder really quickly and then you make lots of money and then you're happy. Right. Isn't, is that not how it goes, Dave? That's the dream in air quotes. Yeah. <laughs> right. And I, I certainly thought that that was the dream. You, you look like you're going to ask a question. Yeah, well, yeah. You said that you didn't have good role models when it came to business ownership. Yes. Did you have bad role models when it came to business ownership? I did. And it wasn't necessarily people close to me, but the people I was surrounded by in the small town where I grew up, everybody that owned a business appeared to be stressed and strapped all the time. And I knew that I didn't want that. And also I grew up very, very poor. So early on, I perceived that the solution to a lot of happiness problems was about money. Obviously mm -hmm. that you know, money only takes you so far as it relates to happiness. And certainly it's a tool, a wonderful tool that, that can assist with, you know, your goals and the things that you, that are important to you. But beyond that, it's certainly not the solution to everything. So with my limited exposure, I didn't understand that was a thing that you could do. It's, it sounds crazy, but I just, I didn't understand. I didn't get it. So instead I thought that when I had this really wonderful job offer or what other people considered to be a good job that, you know, paid reasonably well, and I was going to be able to they were going to buy me a BMW and all these things. And my friends and family are saying, Oh my goodness, you've got a job straight out of college. Like you, you've got to take that. You've got to do that. I assumed that I, I had to. So I sold all the yeah. pieces of my business and, you know, assets and the trucks and things like that. Mm. And then I went to work and it wasn't great. Do you regret that you did that? That you sold off the, the business? I did it first. Like almost immediately, I'm like, wow, this is mm -hmm. terrible. But here's what ended up happening out of that, that experience, which I don't think I would change for almost anything is I went and I was, I was there for a year and I was working in Portland, Oregon area. And so I was commuting, you know, my commute was roughly about two, two and a half, sometimes three hours a day going wow. uh, both ways. And I was sitting in traffic. So I was having a lot of time to contemplate and a lot of time just hating life. I legit had these thoughts over and over again every single day where I was like, oh my goodness, is this, is this what life is really like? Is this what you're supposed to do? Like, is this what adulting is? And <laughs> I thought I just couldn't hack it. So I kept trying over and over again. And at some point I realized this is terrible. Like I had gained 50 pounds and I was just not happy. And my wife and brand new bride at the time was not happy with me either because I was working 80 plus hour weeks. And oh so I decided I have to have a conversation with my boss. So 
this is the part that ended up changing everything. He worked in another state, actually. So I called him on the phone. He listened for 20, 30 minutes, asked a lot of questions, a lot of really great questions, carrying questions is what I'd say. And I thought, oh my goodness, this is, why didn't I have this conversation a long time ago? And then what happened is three weeks later, he came into town and then he fired me. And interesting. Yeah. So that took a very different turn than what I expected, but I would say the wonderful, to answer your earlier question really quick, the wonderful, really positive thing that came out of that is on the way driving home after being fired and realizing, oh crap, I brought my new bride down here and she doesn't, I don't know if we don't even have a job to show for it. I took her away from her family and everything. And like, now I have to tell her, oh my goodness, I have to like call her and tell her. And it was pouring rain as it does in Portland sometimes. And I'm like, I can never do this again. Like I have to figure out a way to take control of of my career Mm -hmm. and figure out how to have something that's much more fulfilling that also earns quite a bit of money. And so that was the start, which became, you know, a 25 year journey almost at this point to what has led to now. Do you feel that him firing you was actually a kindness or was it no that he just knew you didn't want to work there <laughs> well at first i was really embarrassed honestly for so many different reasons and i wasn't that old i wasn't that mature necessarily and i felt like he had taken it out on me and it's like well why uh, why did okay. and that that i don't think was reality i think he was making what he felt was the best decision for the organization at the time, because I also wasn't performing very well because I hated it. Oh my goodness. I, it was despised it. And I'm not somebody who can just like fake it at work necessarily. I have to actually feel great about my situation to perform wonderful as well. Yeah, of course. But here's the, here's the interesting part of that. Many years later, I ran into a number of people that I had worked with at the organization and we started talking about it and ended up you know, connecting with him and realized that he was actually very conflicted about that. He didn't really want to fire me, but my performance was so bad that he felt that he had to and didn't really have another alternative at that point in time. Like that section of the organization that I was leading was not doing very well. And he felt like it was legit the right thing to do. Yeah. That's why I asked that because I think sometimes we always view getting fired as a negative thing or that it's personal, but sometimes it's actually the right thing for us or for for another person. If we're leading and we've got somebody in that position, letting them go is not always a bad thing. And as you're telling that story, it's reminding me of a couple of things. I have a book called The Focused Business. And uh, boy, maybe because you said that you were a psychology nerd, I'm feeling like I need to nerd out with you a little bit. Let's do this. Here's another superhero analogy. The book book, uh, actually compares entrepreneurs to superheroes. And what I do is I say, there are seven supervillains that are trying to destroy you mm. and your business. They're, and I'm talking about real world things like yep. marketing and customers, employees. So there are two things in your story that, that remind me of that. Number one is the concept of the bear. And the bear is a villain who is in a business. They're working in your business and they're creating messes everywhere that they go. And a lot of people have a really, really hard time letting go of that person when in fact it's better for them to let them go. It will help them be more successful. And the other thing is, you know, as you're talking about standing in the rain in Portland and making that decision, Mm -hmm. that's an origin story right there. 
right? That's a pivotal moment. And one of the origin stories that applies, and I, you know, I'm talking about the book talks about entrepreneurs, but I think it applies to other people as well is adversity. You're faced with a terrible moment and it forces you to make a decision. This is the, this is the Iron Man story, right? He's trapped in a cave and he has to build the Iron Man suit to escape. It's the same thing. Like you were saying, I can't do this to my family. And that spurred you to create really the beginning part of the business that you have now, which is quite successful. Absolutely. And that's a big reason why I say that I'm thankful for it because a lot of what happened later simply would not have happened had to not have that set of events. And it was terrible. I wouldn't wish it on anyone. You know, there was a point in time where I seriously considered jumping out the second story window just to get a day off. Like I, this, these were real thoughts that were going on in my wow. head that obviously were not healthy, but <laughs> yeah. I'm like, huh, this seems like a reasonable thing. If I just break a leg, like, first of all, is that insurance fraud? Like, I didn't really understand how this works, but I could at least get a day or two off. Right. Folks, folks, if you're listening along and you have a thought like that, that's a pretty good sign you're not in the right job yeah. for you. <laughs> yeah. The, and the sheer amount of stress and things that came along with that, that caused me to eventually think that these were normal thoughts. It, right. yeah. I mean, it was all leading up over that year and a half, year, year and a half, whatever it was that I was there. And, you know, I think that the other thing that I'm really thankful for, though, you're talking about firing people. I've fired hundreds of people, like multiple hundreds of people over the last 20 years. And I think that I, it's caused me to look very differently, getting fired at such a young age in my first, you know, quote unquote, professional role, that great role that everybody told me I was supposed to get. It's really changed how I looked at it because it became such a wonderful situation for me. I, I now think about it more as what happens if this person stays here? What am I denying them of? Because yes. if they're not doing well and they're not benefiting the organization, first of all, they're blocking the spot for some other person in the world that can, you know, that can fill that. And we're denying that person. But more importantly, we're denying this other person to go find what they are really wonderful at, what would be meaningful in their life right now. And yes, you know, this is very much how we look at things in our organization. Uh, a lot of people look at our you know, website or listen to our podcast and they're like, oh, you help people make career changes. But really what we do is we are focused on changing how people think about and actually do work. And this is a great example of a different way to think about what work even is and what creates a great situation for you, this situation of you know, being fired. Yeah. Well, I love how you took that. I mean, that experience that you had working in, in corporations helps you now too, because now you understand what that was like. I don't think you'd have the success that you're having now in teaching people about their careers if you hadn't gone through that path. No. And I wouldn't, place. out of those hundreds of people, I probably had about half of them. Well, let's be honest, like the first half of them, like I had somebody throw Cheetos at me and other things, but like the later, the last, <laughs> right. you know, about 150 or so people would like, we would basically, you know, end up in tears together and then they would say, thank you. And we had hug on the way out the door. Oh my gosh. I'm so glad that you just said that because that's exactly what I say in my book in the focus business. Interesting. Then one of the most common thing you know, I ask, you know, I ask the audience, what do you think people say when you fire them? If they're at the bear and they're making these messages, what do you think they say? And the word is it's thank you. And the people around you 
say thank you, right? Because that's also part of it. It's not just the individual. It's the collateral damage that's happening with the other employees who are dealing with this. It's a terrible thing and no one wants to hear this really. But the truth is sometimes being let go or letting someone go is a catalyst for them finding success in the future. Yeah. What if it were the best thing that could happen to them? Just like it was the best thing, one of the best things certainly that happened to me in my life. What if it was that way, especially if we can, you know, love and support them in that particular way? Um, Yes. Certainly. Yeah. Talk to me about the early stages of what is now your career. What were some of the first steps that you took that led to, would you say that the creation of the podcast was the first big thing? What was the first big step where you were making money and profitable? With our organization happened to your career, this came, oh my goodness, many years later. So we're about 10 years old now. And, you know, this is 2023. So 2013 is where, where began it and began it with the podcast and coaching. And those were you know, that's basically what we had. That was the business in itself. People paid us money via coaching and we would help them make ginormous career changes or help them get raises or help them find fulfilling work. And then, you know, the podcast became really the catalyst for how the business continued to develop because through that source, we started getting feedback from people all over the world. And we started realizing that my experience of having less than mediocre work is a normal experience. And that's Mm. what most people in the world have. And unfortunately, you know, even when you look at, I don't know, there's so many studies out there and Gallup as an organization does a really nice job of providing a lot of that data, but Gallup has even gotten rid of the terminology they used to use what they would call a great job, something that is like really highly fulfilling, like where people are enamored with their work. And uh-huh. they now, it's such a small portion. When you read their most current studies, they don't even put it in there anymore. Instead, they focus on what what creates a good job, what they call a good job. And that's, that's now the goal. Like we are, we are after good. a good job because so few people have great work that it seems almost unattainable. And I, although I love, love, love the work that they do at Gallup, I wish that they would not continue to choose that because it's a misnomer, especially today more so than ever before. So anyhow, to answer your question, the podcast was the catalyst to getting all of the feedback, meeting people all over the world and realizing that people are having these experiences and that we could uniquely help them think about this and change their reality in a very different way. How did you get your first clients for coaching? That is usually the hardest part. So you mm. built the happened to your career, but where did the first people come from that actually paid you to get this consultation and coaching? That should be an easy question. I feel like I should remember that forever. You know, well, here's the reason why it's a little bit convoluted for me, because I was at the time, my wife and I, we were very focused on me becoming a VP of this organization that I work for. Really wonderful organization, really had a great experience with them. And the goal was I was going to become a VP of HR for their organization. You know, they flew me to headquarters and everything. We were picking out a house to head down that track. We're going to you know have a house built. Like that's how serious we were about it. And then at some point we realized that our goal was to move to Omaha, Nebraska to be able to be on the VP track so that we could then 
earn enough money and get the resume experience to then come back to Moses Lake, Washington, where we lived. And you can see that this is an <laughs> well, asinine. It plan, sounds right? like that, that, that cliche metaphor story about the guy fishing on the Island and the guy. Yes. Tells him yes. To, that was yes. us. We were living that like where <laughs> uh, if it's the story that I'm thinking of too, then where they're the, you know, MBA or whoever you're telling the story to, or is telling the story to you um, yeah. says, but don't you want to grow this fishing operation bigger? And, but why? So that you can then buy more boats, but why? And then, yes, yes I was very, <laughs> very much living that. And we kind of had this realization moment where it's, this is stupid. Like, why, why would we do this? Like, we're already like, we're going to do it for the money. We're already earning great money. Um, are we going to do it for the resume? Like, I don't need more experience on the resume. And so we started questioning everything. And one of the, ideas that came out of that is that I had wanted to go back to owning my own business again. And I had told that to the people that had hired me. I had also told them it was going to be like 10 years in the future, but that accelerated that. And we realized, okay, well, what's that going to look like? Well, at that same time, I had been going and meeting with people just for fun because people, as it turns out, when they heard all my stories of career change and like, how did you get a $40,000 raise here when they said they weren't giving raises or promotions and, you know, how'd you go from you know, operations into HR, all these things, they would ask, well, how did you do that? And so turns out I like coffee and they were willing to buy me coffee to tell them how I did that and then, you know, share insight, which then they could duplicate. So I was doing that a lot. So I was getting paid in coffee for a while. Okay. And then at some point, people starting to offer to pay. They were sending me thank you notes and gift cards. And I'm like, this is great. Like, I will take all the Starbucks gift cards you can send me. So people were paying you before you were asking to be paid? Yes. Oh, wow. So here's the... here's That's, that's interesting. I'm the type of person sometimes where the burner has to... I have to touch it a few times to realize that it's hot. And that was certainly <laughs> the case here because I was having that experience and we're like, well, I could own a business. What kind of business could I start? And only after like the 20th or 30th of these conversations and people offering to pay, uh, did I realize, Oh, maybe there's something here. Oh yeah. That could make sense. I'm already doing that. Yeah. So it was accidental in that way and very organic. How long did it take you, like, would you guess roughly, was it months? Was it years of this happening until you finally, like, it clicked in your head? It had been going on for a couple of years. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Okay. And it was, I mean, this is something I was just literally doing for fun because friends and coworkers and family had asked. And I'm like, yeah, I can, sure. I'll, yes, please. There's a phrase that you just tossed in there and someone might miss it, but I want to highlight it, mm -hmm. which was for fun. And a lot of people who are really successful, I've done these interviews and I see other people that I've coached, that aspect of loving what you're doing is so critical. I, I'm not saying something that is is actually false, which is just follow your passion and the money will follow. Oh, That's geez. not true. Yeah. That's internet. But, please stop saying that yes, over and over again. Yes, yes. It's not true. But what is true is that if you're doing something that you love and is fun, it's more likely that it will happen. You got to add the gifts and the skills to that. You also got to add the training to it. And so the fact that you were just doing this for fun was, I think part of the reason why you were good at it. And part of the reason why people were so interested in, in paying you for it. I agree. 
And I think there's something else that's really subtle in there that gets lost. Like if you think about it from a strategic point of view, if you are not having fun, as you said, and if you're not doing something for fun, then when you go to get paid for it later on, then if you're starting out with something that is not fun, it's not going to become fun. Mm. So, so true. There's really, really simple logic there. Like people, for some reason, we as humans, we have a tendency to think about it backwards. Like I'm going to find the thing that works for me and then I'm going to figure out somehow how to mesh it and mold it and like make it, turn it into a way that's going to just be a magical and fun for me. And that's not really how it works. Like we have to start, we have to start with the enjoyment. We have to start with the, I can't stop doing this. We have to start with some level of, I don't know if obsessive is the right word, but some level, something that is good for us, fun or otherwise. Doing something you love gives you longevity because every job has something that sucks. Yeah. The question is, do you love it enough that you're going to keep going in spite of those moments? And that's where I think love comes in most, most handy. But I, I like that where you're saying, you know, don't, don't expect it to change. Don't expect that to come later on. Because I think there's an inherent nature of a lot of different jobs that either we love it or we're not going to love it ever. <laughs> yeah. And I think that, you know, I had mentioned earlier our goal is to change how people think about what work is or what it can be and how it can serve you just as much as you are serving other people. And the clues are often there. Like you had mentioned earlier, you know, finding something that is fun. When I say that though, people often think about like, well, I love golfing. Golfing is fun. Yeah. How do I make no. something out of golfing? And it's usually not that, but most of the time it's, what are the things that you can't stop doing is yeah. a better question. Like I observed this phenomenon over and over again when I was working in HR is that I would have these conversations where I was coaching leaders and coaching, you know, managers and they'd be like, ah, this person is not performing. And I would ask them about it. And what we'd find is that they're exhibiting their strengths, the things that they can't stop doing and that is manifesting in a way that the manager doesn't believe is contributing to their job. So quick example, this guy was a pretty new line level supervisor, if you will. And he couldn't stop going from place to place and like talking. And the byproduct of that was he built really strong relationships with the team. Everybody loved this guy. You know, they would bend over backwards for him, whatever he needed. The other side of that was his boss felt he was shirking his duties because he wouldn't stop talking to other people. And he, mm. he, he literally could not stop. We could not have paid him enough money or, you know, dropped the whip on him or any of those things. We couldn't have changed that behavior because it was so innate and that's what he was having fun with. So he moved on to a completely different job in a different organization where that's what he got to do. And he did so, at, I think it was like double the pay rate and, you know, he's much happier. Oh, that's an interesting story. So you started the podcast quite a while ago. Mm -hmm. Now you're in the top 0.5% on listen notes, which is, if you're not familiar with it, that's a pretty big milestone to hit. That means your, your podcast is quite popular. What are some of the moments that you think have led to the success that you have now? Like how did, how did you get to that level with the podcast? I mentioned it earlier, 
But that feedback from our listeners is infinitely valuable. Hmm. And I think there's two sides to that. One, I think part of my strengths allow me to sift through data really well and sift through feedback and resources and incoming information really well. And that's just built into how I am wired very much. And part of that is because in some ways, don't really care about what many other people think. There are certainly people in my life where I care a lot about what they think. My wife, I very much care about what she thinks. My kids, I, uh, I definitely care about what they think and certainly other people too. But it's served me very well in that when I get a lot of feedback, it helps me to pay attention to the stuff that is going to be most useful for the people that we felt at the time we could serve best. And so what would happen is we'd take those little bits of feedback and we'd apply it and we made this show just for these people, essentially. And Mm -hmm. the funny thing about any kind of marketing and psychology is that everyone wants to make things more vanilla, if you will. You've probably heard, you know, this example in various different ways, but the tendency is like we get all the feedback and we do all the things. And then all of a sudden we have this very vanilla show, very terrible, bland show in so many different ways. And instead we focused on just one tiny group and what that happens is we made it for them, but then other people want to come along for the ride and that's caused it to grow quite a bit over the years. But more importantly than that, it's caused it to be super valuable to a group of people to where they just, I literally had a person yesterday uh, email me and said, I will be a raving fan forever. Thank you so much. Like that wasn't something like we put into their head. Like that's what they wrote in the email. And that's the type of relationship that we had strived to create. So that's been a big part of it is just sifting through feedback, but also getting that feedback and trying to serve the people that we feel we can help best. That's got to feel really gratifying to hear that, that kind of response. It is. People, especially when you, you've been working on it for almost 10 years, right? Yeah. Yeah, it really is. I feel obligated, I think is the right word and the right feeling to continue to continue to find new and better ways to serve those folks. Talk to me about the role that your family has played in in your success and talk to me about the role that your your family has played in your career. <laughs> well, that obligation, their obligation is something that has been very present for me and I have much like ADHD, you know, tried to find ways when I realized that it influences my behavior, whether it's ADHD or obligation, I've tried to find ways to cultivate that to be a positive. So when my wife and I had our first child, I realized that I didn't really want to just have a mediocre career or mediocre life for that matter. Hmm. And that very much drove me to attempt to create a life, which I don't necessarily separate out my life from my work, but create a life and work that is positively role modeling the pieces that I want to pass on to my kids in terms of how they think about work, but also how they think about it interacting with the rest of their life too. So that has really, really driven me to make very, I would say, extreme decisions over the years. What, is that, what does that mean? What's an example of an extreme decision? I'll give you a couple of quick examples. So in 
we're very much into travel as a family. And, you know, that's become a part of, you know, the Barlow family for lack of a better phrase. And even when I hear my kids talking to other people, they go, they represent our family. Like, Oh, we travel a lot. Like we explore a lot. Like we do. And that was very intentional to the point where like, we just took a month off this last year and you know, spent most of it in Greece, but it started out just as a way to be able to be more intentional about how we're spending time with our kids. And that was the first time that we did that. And we would pull the kids out of school. And one of the things that we would hear over and over again from people is like, ah, oh, you can't do that. Like you must be getting something special. Like uh, we can do that at my school. But what we found is that we're in a very normal school and we'd just go in and we'd talk to the administrators. We'd talk to the teachers and what the teachers would say over and over again in this very normal, you know, kind of mid-sized town school is yeah, like I wish I wish that I could do that when I was a kid and they're going to learn <laughs> way more going and traveling. And so we've made a yeah. lot of very different decisions about both work and life that many people feel are on the fringes. And we've just chosen to make it a part of our lives in one way or another. And, you know, we've faced a lot of flack for it, but also it's been very rewarding. And fortunately, I have ability to not really care in some cases what other people are saying. Uh, so the flack doesn't really bother me that much. Yeah, I love that that... Uh... I, so occasionally I'll do a special episode with my kids yeah. and we'll discuss a principle. We just discussed entrepreneurship. Oh, that's awesome. And what you just described is a great example of it, of saying, you know what, there's, I don't have to do the thing the way everyone else does it. Uh, I can look at things in another way and create this opportunity for my kids to go, even though that's not following the rules. Those rules aren't, they're not legal rules. They're not ethical rules. They're just standards of behavior that have been, you know, passed down for a generation or two. I, I love that so, you did that, by the way, and that you were talking about entrepreneurship with your kids. Like uh, we had this rule in our family where uh, when each of my kids turned 12, I helped them start a business. And mm. the reason that I chose to do that was not because I want them all to be entrepreneurs or want them to be business owners or anything. I don't like they need to find their own path and they need to discover what's going to be great for them. Uh, but I wanted them to not feel that they had to go a certain direction. I wanted them to have exposure to many, many different directions because in all the research that I've done, in all of the studies that I've read, what seems to help more than any other thing in allowing people to make decisions that are better for them is having exposure to a lot of different options. Remember when I yes. didn't have exposure to any kind of positive, you know, role models for business owners? Well, yeah. that was, I mean, that was that in play in many different ways. And that certainly influenced my career to make some bad choices for myself. And yes, those panned out well, but that's not the case for everyone. Yeah. I love that you're encouraging your children to try all those different things. It's something I, I try to do with my family is give my children exposure to lots of different career paths. Because I think if you have that exposure, then it's going to be easier for you to make decisions in the future about what you want to do rather than just guessing, oh, I think I want to be uh, a lawyer or whatever it is. I thought I wanted to be a lawyer until I took my first pre-law class in college. And I was like, this is, this is I don't want to write research papers for the rest of my life. So I love that principle of exposure. All right. So uh, last question, and then, and then I'll wrap things up. Where do you see, speaking of the future and yeah. diversification, where do you see things for yourself five years from now? We are very much 
planning to continue to lean into the reason why we exist as an organization these days, which very much is to change the way that you know, people do work and think about work in order to allow people to thrive at work around the world. And if you would have asked me 10 years ago, if I wanted to work directly with organizations, I would have told you, heck no, because organizations are too, too bureaucratic and I want to do whatever the heck I want to do when I want to do it. However, I've realized that we are, in order to really make a dent in the world in that particular way, we're going to need to work with some of the leaders of organizations in order to cultivate a place that people not just want to be at, but creates a much, much higher level of fulfillment because the percentage is infinitesimally small right now of people mm. that really get to experience that type of work in that particular way that we were talking about earlier that creates more fulfillment. And that has to change. It must change. And now it's very, very possible. So we're definitely heading that direction. We will continue to operate on impacting individuals, either individuals in those organizations by working with leaders or continuing to impact individuals that are wanting to focus on their career and their career development and their career change and find fulfilling work and continue to iterate on what their version of ideal and fulfilling work is. So fascinating. Yeah. Very cool. And there are a couple of resources we'll point people to, to, toward. Of course, your podcast happened to your career and then also your book happened to your career, which is nice that they match up like that. So you can check that out on Amazon. Okay. So Scott, at the end of every episode, what I do is I take the story that you've shared with us and I try to help our audience find specific action items. So something that they can do, because my perspective is knowledge has value, but it's not nearly as valuable as the action that you take on that knowledge. So I want to encourage people to make Scott Anthony Barlow a part of their life forever. So here are three that I see. And then Scott, please chime in at the end with one or two Absolutely. actions, something specific someone can take today or tomorrow to make your story a part of their life. So here's the first one. Find the strength in your weakness. Consider the things that you're struggling with. Scott has been very candid about his issues with ADHD, but also how he used that to be successful. So consider something that you're dealing with and ask yourself, where is the strength? Where's the hidden strength here? And try to use that and emphasize that more. Second one, this is a tough one and it's not for everyone, but consider the concept of letting go or being let go. Ask yourself, are you hoping that something bad will happen to you so that you can take a day off? <laughs> like, like, like Scott was saying, be aware of that and recognize that maybe a change isn't the worst thing, or maybe consider someone that you're working with that maybe that kind of change is going to be the right thing and just be open to the concept. And then I'm, I'm going to call out the thing you brought up, Scott, about how people kept asking you for help with something and you were getting paid in coffee and then they were like trying to give you money <laughs> for it. And, and I think a lot of people listening to this may have a thing that people keep asking them for. And you're just because you're so used to it and because you're just having fun, you might not be aware that this is a career possibility or this is an entrepreneurial possibility. So ask yourself, is there something that people keep wanting from me? And then how could you do maybe a little bit more with that? Or maybe how could you make a little money with that and explore and see what happens with that? What would you add, Scott? Definitely 
checkmark, cosine next to those three that you had mentioned, particularly the strengths. And I'll give you, I'll give you one or two quick coaching questions that we use for our clients all over the world right. too. So one I mentioned earlier, but I think it's worth saying again, because we've just found it so useful. What are the things that you gravitate to that are not a part of your role? This is how we'll ask it in a coaching session that you can't stop doing. Like the things that are not a part of your job, they're, you're not hired for, you're not getting any money for these things, but you sort of can't stop completely, even if you're being asked to by your boss in doing these things or gravitating towards those things, because those give you clues, pay attention to those. And then that leads to the bigger portion, which is take the steps and the time. And it's less about time, but the actions to identify what creates ideal work for you. And that is incredibly difficult to do. We'll often work for uh, work with people for many months at a time to craft their own version of ideal, but it is worth doing because unless you know that it's going to be impossible for you to just happen on ideal work. Like that's going to be nearly impossible, but uh, it's not very often. And the thing now is that it's entirely possible in most areas of the world, not all, but this day and age, like fulfilling work that also pays you incredibly well and provides for you and allows you to provide for other people in a meaningful way is incredibly possible, but it will not happen unless you take ownership of that. So I guess one other actionable thing that you can do, I know you mentioned the book. We talk about like specifically how to do that in the book itself and offer a number of resources happen to your career, which is any place where you buy books. Audiobook is probably the best way, especially if you're listening to a podcast would say, check that out. We get many people that say this is the best audiobook experience I've ever had in my life because we have many of the oh, people wow. we've worked with who share their stories firsthand in their voice. And that's oh, integrated that's cool. into it. But um, more importantly than that, another another thing you can do just to get started, go to happentoyourcareer.com and click on the eight-day mini course. And that'll help you begin to define what is your most ideal version of work. And you just Wonderful. get a super simple couple of emails every day for eight days. And it helps you begin to craft your own version of ideal work. That's great. Thank you for generously sharing those resources with us. Absolutely. And thanks for taking the time to have this discussion. It's been very enlightening and uh, you've got a fascinating story. So thank you for sharing that. Thank you for making this super fun, Dave. I had a great time. I really appreciate it. Yeah. And thank you, everyone, for listening. Remember, it's not just about the knowledge that you gain, but it's the action that you take on that knowledge. So do something today, tomorrow, even if it's just one small thing, then you can make Scott Anthony Barlow a part of your life forever. Thanks for listening. You've been listening to the Dave Crenshaw Success Project, hosted by my dad, Dave Crenshaw, and produced by Invaluable Incorporated. Sound editing was done by my brother, Stratton Crenshaw. Research and assistant production by Victoria Bidez. Voiceover by me, Darcy Crenshaw. And the music is by Ryan Brady via Pond 5 Licensing. Please subscribe to the Dave Crenshaw Success Project on Google Podcasts, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you like to get your podcasts. And please don't forget to leave us a five-star review. See you next.